Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. found your seat. If you could open your Bibles up to Mark 13, please. Mark 13. And uh, what we're going to do this morning is in uh, covering the, the gospel of Mark as we have been doing since the beginning of this year, we've now come all the way through to the end of the last four chapters of Mark's gospel together. And um, I've really, really enjoyed reading Mark's gospel. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I've loved reading about Jesus. And uh, what I'd like to do this morning is talk about Jesus, talk about um, how wonderful he is, how complete his work is, and what he's done in our lives, and what he's done for us, and why he is so significant to us today, and and why the world is is in so much need to know him and to find him. And... um, I've called this, um, given this, this session the title, The Temple, the Garden, and the Tree, because in these last four chapters of Mark, in fact, really from Mark 11, we're, we're in the temple, and we're in Jerusalem, and, and we're covering the last week of Jesus' life before he dies on the cross, before he's buried, and then rises again and ascends back to heaven. And during this last week, we, we see the story shift from the temple into the garden, and then to the cross, to the tree. And then we go back to the garden where Jesus rises from the dead and uh, appears before uh, Mary Magdalene and the other ladies um, and, and to the, uh, some of the other disciples as well. But as I was just been reading these last um, four chapters, I've probably read this, these four chapters now maybe a dozen times in the last few weeks. And when I first read it, I was like, Lord, I don't know what to share on. I'm not quite sure what, to, what, what part to pull out. And as I've read it more and more, I've thought, I just need to talk about all of it. So strap yourselves in. My wife's brought a pillow. I gave her the heads up that it's going to be a long one. But I, I don't normally talk for like more than 40 minutes, but this is going to be about 45 minutes because what I'm going to do, I'm going to prepare you now in advance. I'm going to read through all of these four chapters and pull some things out that I believe are really significant for us to grasp and what Mark is wanting to show us about the fullness of the work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is with his disciples, they are so caught up in Old Testament, Old Covenant thinking. That's all they've known. And Jesus is there to really shake them up and say, guys, something new is on the horizon. Something new is going to be introduced through the work that I do. He starts talking about the kingdom of God and he starts to talk about this new covenant that will be found in him. And he's there trying to change the mindset of the disciples who are so caught up in Old Testament, Old Covenant thinking and are very much caught up in natural, physical things. Does that sound familiar ever? When we get caught up in the day-to-day, we get caught up in the now, we get caught up in the physical things, and we get caught up in the practical things, and we lose sight of those things that are spiritual, those things that are eternal, that are of far greater value and importance and significance than anything transient, temporal, and physical right now. And he's trying to help his disciples to get hold of this, to get their heads around it. So I'm reading from the New Living Translation. If you don't have the New Living Translation, you're welcome to follow just to make sure that I'm telling the truth. 
but if you'd rather just listen, that's fine. There'll be some pictures, uh, Polaroids that were taken during the time, around sort of 30 AD. Uh, there'll be some images up on the screen just to kind of help prompt and, and, and bring some images as I go. So I'm going to read all the way through and just pick some things up as we go, okay? Lord, we just ask that you'd bless your word this morning as it's read among us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for speaking to us already so clearly and so wonderfully. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd continue to guide us into all truth and that you'd reveal Jesus to us afresh this morning. We thank you that's something that you love to do and we ask that you would do that for us right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Mark 13, verse one. As Jesus was leaving the temple, there it is. The droid that took the picture for the temple there was hovering above Jerusalem. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at these impressive stones in the walls. You know what? This was an impressive structure. Look at it. That outer courtyard that you can see there, that was where the Gentiles were. That's where the the, the selling and and the marketplace was that Jesus wanted to sort out and and get back in order again because the Gentiles were being excluded from worshipping. God, this was an impressive structure. When Solomon built it around 950 BC, it was impressive. And it stood for 400 years and then the Babylonians came and they trashed it. But God's people returned. A tiny group of people returned to the land with Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And it was never like as glorious as Solomon's temple was, but it stood, and it stood for another 400 years, and then when Herod the Great came in, into power, he wanted to leave a mark, he leave his mark, and so he, he beautified and extended the temple and, made, and, and worked on it for about 40 years. And by AD 63, it was glorious, marble and gold. And so from a distance, as you stood, looking into Jerusalem on top of this hill, it looked like there was snow resting on top of the hill in Jerusalem as the sun hit the marble and hit, hit the gold, and it shone on this mountaintop. It was a glorious building that was part of Jewish life for a thousand years. And because of that, it had become, to some degree, a bit of an idol. It had become something bigger than it ever was meant to be. You know what? This was only ever meant to be a temporary building, a house that started off as a tent and a tabernacle. David wanted to do something more permanent and build something greater. And and through his son Solomon, built everything together so Solomon could build this house for what? For God's glory, God's presence to rest there. A house for God. But was God ever meant to be contained by stone and marble and gold? No. Something far bigger, far greater. This was only a signpost. This was only a temporary measure. And yet this to the disciples was something as permanent as they could think and get their heads around. And so Jesus shakes them up out of their natural, temporal, temple, physical thinking. He says this, yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. The disciples are shocked. How can this incredible structure be destroyed? By 63 AD, the temple was finished. By 70 AD, it was demolished. The Romans had come and they they desecrated the temple. They'd set fire to the temple buildings. The gold that was enameled around it had melted into the cracks in the stones. And so the soldiers were ordered to literally take the temple apart stone by stone so that they could gather the gold that had melted into the cracks between the stones. It was demolished in living memory for many of the people that were listening to Jesus at this time. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the, te- across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, tell us, 
When will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Jesus replied, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars. But don't panic. Yes, these things must take place. But the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. As the disciples are hearing this, these are men that have grown up under Roman rule. There was a hundred years of history called the Pax Romana, a hundred years of enforced Roman peace. The concept of nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom was completely alien to these men. Jesus was changing their thinking dramatically. He's saying, boys, the world is going to change around you. Be prepared for things to change. We must be prepared for things to change around us. But there are constants that we're always to rely on and look to. And this is what he's helping them to understand. Don't panic. These things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines, but this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Watch out when these things begin to happen. Watch out. You'll be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You'll stand trial before governors and kings because you're my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. And when you're arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you're my followers. Thanks, Jesus. But Jesus is saying things are going to change. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be trial. But I want you to still know this. This will be an opportunity for you. This is a time where I don't want you to panic. This is a time when you're to be at peace. This is not a time to worry. This is a time to rely on me and my Holy Spirit. And do this. The one who endures to the end will be saved. To endure. In the context of change, stay strong. Stand strong in me, in my spirit. The day is coming, verse 14, when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must return to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter. For there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out. I have warned you about this ahead of time. Jesus is saying the world is going to change around you, but stay constant. And you know what? Again, in living memory, by AD 70, there was the, the people in, in Judea and Jerusalem had to flee from Roman oppression. And the Jews were put under incredible pressure. Many of the, uh, the disciples that heard these things lived through this time. And he's saying, in the light of changing things around you, stay true, stay strong, endure. If after that time of anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. 
And Jesus is referring to a prophecy by Isaiah that, that talks about changing in governments and rules and nations and kingdoms. And we must be wise to understand that what happens on earth is a result of what's going on in the heavenlies. That all earthly powers are under the influence of heavenly powers. And he's saying that there's going to be movements in the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, things happening in the heavenlies, and it will affect what's going on on earth. But know this, the one who rules above all in heaven is overseeing it all. And he's preparing everything, and he's shaping everything, and he's creating an opportunity in the right time for what? For the sun to come in glory. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. This is the Jesus that we're worshiping this morning. And he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree when its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout. You know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that his return is very near. Right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away from the scene before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know what time, that, that time he will come, be on guard and stay alert. You know, that's why it's so important that we gather together. So important why we encourage one another as we see the day approaching that we're not to give up the habit of meeting together but to encourage one another and to continue to exhort one another and encourage one another to keep going, to stay true to the faith, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to say he's coming soon in glory. No matter what's happening in the world around us, God is sovereign, God is in control. He has a perfect plan and Jesus is the summation and the fullness of it. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the woman, sorry, by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do. And he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch, for you don't know how, sorry, you don't know when the master of the household will return in the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone watch for him. Jesus is changing their thinking. He's saying, this temple is just a signpost. This temple is just something that is pointing to something and someone far greater. This temple is only a shadow. It will come and it will go, but there's an eternal person, an eternal thing that God is creating, an eternal plan that's fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He's helping them to understand and change in their thinking. And then Jesus goes into Jerusalem and and in verse 14 it says it was now two days before the Passover we'll put the next picture up the festival of unleavened bread and leading priests and teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him but during the Passover celebration they they agreed not to or the people might riot meanwhile Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon a man who had previously had leprosy While he was eating, a woman came with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor, so they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you. And you can help them whenever you want to. 
but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. And Lisa did a great job last week of talking about this picture of of extravagant worship. And in the room, there's a woman who's giving her all to Jesus. She's laying everything out before him, pouring her life savings onto him, saying, Lord, have it all. And in that room, there are men, there are people who are offended. And one of them is Judas Iscariot. It says, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard why he'd come and they, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. You know what? Jesus was never sold. Jesus was given. But Judas was bought. And for us to understand the significance and the challenge sometimes of earthly wealth, of physical things, don't ever let them buy you. Don't ever let them buy your life. Don't ever let them buy your favor or your allegiance or your alliance or your loyalty or faithfulness. Because this is what had happened to this man and he was willing, therefore, to sell himself. And thinking he was selling Jesus, he was selling himself. Jesus was given. On the last, oh, sorry, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover meal for you? So Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. Now, if you want to know how to move in specific prophetic word, this is how you do it. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest where I can eat, uh, well, sorry, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that's already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. You know, we've got a story here of a, ma- of a woman with a jar and a man with a jar, and both of them are very significant individuals. And in Mark's recollection, neither of them are named, but they're both very significant. And what I love about this man is for a man to carry a jar of water in Middle Eastern times in a city would have been shameful and, hu- and humiliating. It was the ladies, the women that carried jars of water. And if a man was ever going to carry water, it was going to be in a skin, but never a jar. This was a sign of of, of shame or or humility, but what it did was this. It made him stand out in the crowd. That in the hustle and the bustle of the city, this man stood out as a person that would help lead people to where the place of the new covenant. And I love that picture, that God wants us to be those who carry living water wherever we go. And that wherever we are, in the hustle and the bustle of the cities and the towns that we're in, that we stand out from the crowd because we're different. And then when people meet us, they follow us and we lead them to where? The new covenant. I love that. That's all we get to know about this guy, but he plays a significant part in the establishing of the new covenant. So the disciples went into the city and listen to this, found everything just as Jesus had said. And they prepared the Passover meal there. Two times in these two chapters, in in Mark 13, verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Mark 14, 16, they found everything just as Jesus had said. His word is eternal. His word is reliable. What he says will happen, will happen. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve. As they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, 
One of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one? He replied, it is the one of you 12 who is eating from this bowl with me. For the son of man must die as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It will be far better for that man if he'd never been born. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and he drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus was sitting in a room with 12 men. One was going to betray him and the other 11 were going to abandon him. And yet he breaks bread with them and makes a covenant with them. How faithful a savior he is. He was under no illusions about what was going to happen when push came to shove at that time. And yet he gives himself to these men. I want to say this. If you've abandoned Jesus in your life or you've gone away from him, he's never left you. The covenant that he's made with you still stands. He's so faithful. He's so good. He's so faithful. They sang a hymn and they went to the Mount of Olives. On the way, Jesus told them, all of you will desert me. You see, he knew. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter said to him, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter declared emphatically. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. And all the others vowed the same. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. You know, Gethsemane was a garden. And we see this shift from the temple to this guest room where they shared the new covenant and into a garden. And where does everything begin in the Bible for us, in Genesis, in the garden? Where did everything go wrong? In the garden. And now where is everything about to be put right? In the garden. It went wrong with the first Adam. The second Adam has come to put everything right. It went wrong in the first garden. Everything is going to be reestablished and put right and restored in the second garden. Gethsemane and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James and John with him and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. What a prayer. You know, sometimes we look at Jesus and we just assume that he was somehow set like a, like a heat-seeking missile, if you like, on a, on a mission and, and he had no choice about where he was going to go. Oh, he had a choice. He had his own will because he says to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. You know, in the first garden, there's utter disobedience to the Father's will. In this second garden, there's perfect obedience to the Father's will. 
Not my will, but yours be done. In the first garden, that disobedience led them to a tree that they shouldn't have gone to. In this garden, his obedience led him to a tree where he had to go. He returned and found his disciples asleep. He said to Simon Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. He prayed it again. If there's any other way, Lord, but if not, your will, not mine, be done. And he returned to them again and found them sleeping. This is getting embarrassing. But I thought to myself, how many times has Jesus found me asleep? When he's wanted me to be praying and travailing and persevering in prayer, and I've been snoozing and slumbering. And Jesus comes back and he says, I I find you asleep again. Returned to them and found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open, and they didn't know what to say. And he returned to to them a third time, and he said, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But no, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And in this garden, we have this this incredible parallel between the perfect Adam and perfect obedience and and a willingness to obey the Father in in this second garden. And then we also have in this same garden the result of sin that had all gone wrong in the first garden. Apathy and weakness and tiredness and, 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 this, and a willingness to slumber. And then from there, we seem to find this kind of whole spectrum of all the things that, that the fall kind of resulted in. Of betrayal and of violence and of nakedness and of shame and of injustice and brutality. And all of the things that had gone wrong that were now going to be imposed on the one who was going to be perfect and, and be in perfect obedience in this next garden. Immediately, even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They'd been sent by our leading priests and teachers of the religious law and the elders. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. Then you can take him away under guard. As soon as they arrived, Judas walked up to Jesus. Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him the kiss. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. At the end of Genesis 3, we see in the garden a flashing sword as the cherubim holds a sword that prevents access to the garden. And in the second garden, we see a flashing sword cutting off the ear of of the high priest's slave. And Jesus asked them, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you teaching every day, but these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. Then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. One young man man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt, and when the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. You know, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree in the garden, the first thing they realized was what? Nakedness and shame, and a hiding, and a running away. And again, we see these things displayed in this second garden. But instead of things seemingly going wrong and going from bad to worse, things are being put right, because this second Adam is going to do things perfectly. Then they took Jesus to the high priest's home, where the leading priests, the elders, and teachers of religious law had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed at a distance and went right into the high priest's courtyard. There he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. 
Inside, the leading priests in the entire council were trying to find evidence against Jesus but they, so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke against him, but they contradicted each other. Finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another made without human hands. But even they didn't get their story straight. And you know what Jesus had said? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. But what is he talking about? Himself. Because why? He's the fulfillment of the temple. In, in Mark 11, he stands up and he says, this is my house. This is a house of prayer. It was always about him. Yeah. In Mark 12, he talks about the parable of the, the man who owns the vineyard and sends men to try and um, sort out those, the tenants that are evil and finally sends his son and his son is killed. And Jesus says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? The temple. The fulfillment of the temple was always to be in Christ Jesus. Yeah not a physical building, somewhere in the Middle East. And he's helping them to understand this shift and this change that's to take place. He's the fulfillment of the temple. And the house was never meant to be a house built with human hands. It's a spiritual temple. A place where God's glory will be seen. His church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus... Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent and made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Why do we need another witness? You've all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty. They all cried. He deserves to die. Then some of them began to spit at him, and they blindfolded him and beat him with their fists. Prophesy to us, they jeered, and the guards slapped him as they took him away. You know, the, the high council consisted of about 70 men, and Jesus is in the center of this angry mob, blindfolded, and from all directions, he doesn't know where the next blow is going to come. He's being hit and slapped and spat on and beaten. This perfect, perfect person. The Son of God himself subjected himself, allowed himself to be punished in this way for you and I because he loves you and because he's good. And he's going through this. And in the meantime, while this is happening and Jesus is going through this, this is what's happening in, in the courtyard with Peter. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, you were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. Just then a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, this is the man, definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you're a Galilean. Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of the religious law, the entire high council met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. 
Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it. Then the leading priests kept accusing him of many crimes and Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who'd committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? Pilate asked, for he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priests stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Why? Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead tip whip then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. The suffering that he had gone through, the physical torment, the emotional uh, torment and suffering of being abandoned by his disciples, of being beaten and flogged of all night. He was already exhausted in the garden when he was praying, already crushed. And yet now he was going through physical abuse and attack and questioning, psychological and physical and emotional torture and torment. And yet he continues to maintain his dignity. He still is willing to, to hold on to obeying the will of the Father. At any moment he could call for it to stop. And yet he's completely obedient. And in the garden, as a result of the disobedience of the first Adam, and we see the kind of contrast of the obedience of the second Adam, part of the punishment, the curse was what? Pain. Labor pain, the pain of birth for Eve, the pain to till the ground for Adam. And part of the curse was what? Thorns and thistles. And surely enough, he's taking on the curse, the pain that they were cursed with. And he wears on his very head the thorns the sign of the ground being cursed. He's taking it all to the tree for you and for me. The temple is being fulfilled. Everything that had gone wrong in the garden is being put right as he goes to the tree for you and for me. And then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed and spit on him and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then. And the soldiers forced him to carry the cross. Simon was a father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Again, if you go back to Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve uh, suffer a curse and the thorns and pain is part of that. But the enemy, themsel the enemy himself is also cursed. Yeah. And a prophetic promise comes from God to the enemy. And he says, there'll be enmity between you and the woman and between you and her offspring. And you will strike his heel. But listen to me. He will crush your head. When your head is crushed, 
as far as I know, it's game over. And he's saying, you might strike his heel. You can recover from a struck heel. But I don't know any people who've recovered from a crushed head. And at this point, the heel of the offspring of the woman is being struck. But in this one act, the cross is dropped into Skull Hill. The head, the, the skull of the enemy is being crushed once and for all. On Golgotha. That's the picture from, uh, that there's likely to be Skull Hill up there. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. How little they knew, these people. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. How little they knew. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran with a, uh, with, and, and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up for him on a reed stick so he could drink it. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We're back in the temple again. As Jesus hangs on the tree, we see that access to the most holy place, access to the very presence of God that was only limited to one man once a year for a very short period of time was finally thrown open to all who had put their trust in the great high priest in the one who had made the ultimate sacrifice. Torn from top to bottom, four inches thick, this curtain, 15 feet high, but from heaven, God said, it's done. I'm gonna tear this curtain open for access into the most holy place. Encourage you to read Hebrews 19, 20 and 21 that talks about that. The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, truly, this man was the son of God. Some women were there watching from a distance, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. They had been followers of Jesus and cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many of the women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. All this happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. Even as evening, appro sorry, as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honored member of the high council and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead. So he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead. So Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth. Then he took Jesus' body down from the cr uh, cross, wrapped it in the cloth and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. 
Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. You know, Jesus said in, in John 12, verse 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it does nothing. But when it falls to the ground and dies, it produces seed after its own kind, a great harvest. And he talks about the lives of many being saved, being brought to life. In Genesis 1, it talks about trees that drop seed. In Genesis 1, verse 12. And as the seed go into the ground, they produce trees after their own kind. And at this point, the enemy thought that he had killed the son. But all he had done was he planted a seed. He planted a seed that would fall to the ground and die. But in being buried and dying in the ground would produce tree and seed after his own kind. Many mini-Christs would be developed and be brought forth as a result of the sacrifice of this one. And we sit here today as those who are the fruit of what Jesus achieved for us on the cross that day. Saturday evening when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Then, briefly, then they briefly reported all this to Peter and his companions. Afterward, Jesus himself sent them out from east to west with the sacred and unfailing message of salvation that gives eternal life. Amen. After Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went to the disciples who were grieving and weeping and she told them what had happened. But when she told them that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, they didn't believe her. Afterward, he appeared in a different form to two of his followers who were walking from Jerusalem into the country. They rushed back to tell the others, but no one believed them. Still later, he appeared to the 11 disciples as they were eating together. He rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief because they refused to believe those who had seen him after he'd been raised from the dead. You might be here today and people have told you that Jesus is alive and up to this point, you haven't believed them. But I'm here to tell you again, Jesus is alive. He's died for you. He's paid the price for your sin. He's taken your sin, all the things that were wrong in your life. He's taken your sickness. He paid the price on the cross. He defeated them. He was buried. He rose again and he's alive. And he wants you to meet him and encounter him today. And then he says this, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name and they will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety and if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick and they will be healed. When the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down in the place of honour at God's right hand. 
And the disciples went everywhere and preached, and the, wo- and the Lord worked through them, confirming what they had said by many miraculous signs. Praise God. Jesus is alive. He's the fulfillment of the temple, and he's building the temple, and we today gathered a part of that temple where God wants to presence himself and bring glory to his name. If the musicians and the singers up for a moment, I just want us to, to close in worship and just start worship Jesus together. Can we just stand to our feet a moment? Appreciate it. There was a lot of text there read. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit has just imparted something fresh of the work of Christ and who Jesus is this morning. And just where you are right now, just would ask that you would just, in your own heart, in your own mind, just begin to consider him. Consider him right now. You know what? He is the the cornerstone. He's the one who sets the direction for everything. He's the one with whom we align ourselves. We line up our lives with him. And if there's anything in our lives this morning, as the Holy Spirit has has prompted us, this is a chance to put things right. This is a chance to to put it in the garden waste and get rid of it. And a chance to, to pour our lives out before him, to line ourselves up with him. And Lord Jesus, those of us who are gathered here today, if there's anyone that needs to just realign our lives with you, Lord, we do it right now. We put our lives in line with you. Jesus, we say, have your way in our lives. Let your will be done in our lives. You're here this morning and you're not, you know that you've given your life to Jesus, but you've not yet been joined to a church family to to be joined with other living stones. God's heart is that you find your place in the temple that he's building that he wants you to know that you to be carefully joined as part of his holy temple that he's going to fill with his spirit. And if this is the place for you to join yourself, to put yourself in this morning, to say, Lord, this is where I'm going to invest myself. This is where I'm going to find myself joined with men and women around me to build a house for your glory. If you're here this morning and there have been things that you've done wrong, that feel have separated you from God or you've never given your life to him, Jesus has paid the price for your sin. Jesus has opened the way. He's the great sacrifice and he's the great high priest who leads us into the very presence of God, the most holy place, where we can come with clean consciences that have been washed with his sacrificial blood. And it's a reliance on him this morning, not on you and what you can do or haven't done, but a trust in him and a faith in the work that he's done for you for you to know this morning that the seed that's in you is the seed of Christ Jesus if you've given your life to him and the fruit that is being produced in you is fruit that is just like him that he wants you to be just like him in this world full of peace full of strength full of power full of the fruit of the spirit thank you Lord just begin to say Lord Jesus thank you for the work that you've done in my life thank you Lord for your saving work Thank you, Lord, for the fullness of the temple. Thank you, Lord, for what you achieved in the garden, your perfect obedience. Thank you, Lord, that you died on a tree so that we could come to the cross and find life. Thank you, Lord, that we can find eternal life in you this morning. We thank you, Jesus. joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. 
Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We meet every Sunday at 10.30am in Stony Stanton and 4pm in Tamworth and Market Harborough. Feel free to come and visit us. We'd love to meet you. Thank you.